0: thanks for listening to the Toronto Legends podcast I am your host Andrew Applebaum my guest today is journalist and author David Sachs David is an award-winning journalist who has written articles for numerous publications but most notably the New York Times The New Yorker and Bloomberg Businessweek. He is the author of four internationally best-selling books on topics including The Jewish Deli, Food Trends, Analog Vengeance, and Entrepreneurship. His fifth and newest book, which will come out later this year, is The Future Is Analog, How to Create a More Human World. David has reported on cultural issues for over two decades, and he is a frequent keynote speaker focusing on the trends that shape both Toronto the wider world around us welcome david sachs thank you for joining me where are you and how are you uh i am in downtown toronto
1: and uh i'm pretty good
0: if i may let's please go all the way back to the beginning for david sachs where were you born in 1979 and please describe your upbringing
1: uh i was born at toronto general and uh i grew up in the city. Most of my life, I grew up in the same house at, you know, Spadana and Eglinton. Um, so I grew up in, uh, you know, the the life of the typical, you know, Jewish Toronto kid of that era and that geography, um, went to public school at Young and Eglinton, French immersion, uh, you know, my life was kind of, you know, east, west along Eglinton and north, south along Bathurst pretty much and Spadina. Um, and that was the world for me. Like Scarborough was a place that I don't think I ever went Yeah, growing up or Mississauga or Etobicoke. It, these were like very far off places. I think I went to high park twice. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, the, the, the track that I beat was along, you know, up and down Bathurst downtown. Um, my family had, uh, sailboat on one of the Toronto islands. So I spent a lot of time there and in the lake, in the Harbor in the eighties at sailing camp, swimming in that water. Mm -hmm. Um, That's kind of the Toronto I knew. And on the Chinese food front, my father uh, had a law practice and it was in Chinatown and all his clients were from Hong Kong. So, that world was like, that was a major part of, you know, our culinary world was kind of, you know, Jewish delis, pretty much Yitzes on Eglinton, mm-hmm. uh, a few other scattered restaurants, and then various Chinese restaurants um, in Toronto and occasionally at banquets in Markham and, and Richmond Hill and other places. Um, that's the, that's my Toronto and then my adult Toronto from the time I sort of moved back here here um, in my twenties has really been kind of downtown West, like Bathurst, either Bathurst and Bloor or, you know, now kind of Trinity Bellwoods area and that downtown West core. Um, that's my, that's my world.
0: And where'd you go to junior high and where'd you go to high school?
1: Junior high. I went to Forest Hill junior school, which was just terribly run, but across the street from my parents' house. So that was very (laughs) Very convenient convenient lunch. Um, and high school went to Forest Hill Collegiate.
0: And uh, are you prepared to declare your uh, synagogue or affiliation?
1: <laughs> is this a truly religious podcast? <laughs> no. I, I Yeah. I grew up at Holy Blossom. Holy um,
0: Blossom. Okay. Religious
1: school, bar mitzvah, the full, the full shebang. And now Excellent. my wife's cousin is the president of Holy Blossom. So it's okay. all come full circle.
0: Everything goes full circle. Go, Rachel. <laughs> Go, Rachels. Now, David, for university, you went to McGill. Uh, Mm -hmm. was that where you had your heart set on? How'd you end up, uh, heading over to Montreal for school?
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah, for sure. My, even though I was born and raised in Toronto, my parents were both from Montreal. They were part of that generation of Montrealers who, uh, left in the late seventies because of politics and the economy and the world I grew up in as much as I was a Torontonian, I was very much, um, uh, the child of Montrealers, you know, Mm -hmm. we, all our family was, um, in Montreal, the history, we had no history in Toronto. Um, everything was sort of new. My parents had moved here, I don't know, four years before I was born. Um, and so yeah, everything was, was sort of Montreal centric. We went to Montreal for the, you know, holidays and to visit relatives, um, several times a year and, and even the food, like, you know, we ate Bagel World bagels or other Toronto bagels. But, you know, it, it was always still understood that the Montreal bagel was the superior bagel in our house. We would bring it back. Before there were places serving Montreal bagels in Toronto, we'd bring bagels back from Montreal by, you know, several dozen and freeze them. Yes. Um, and so I had such a, a very strong connection to Montreal, love of Montreal, um, and I knew I wanted to go to to school there.
0: Please tell me about your McGill experience.
1: It was great. Yeah. Best years of my life. Um, you know, it was it was it was interesting because then living in Montreal, I was and, and having that connection to it, I'm like, oh well, okay. Actually, I'm in Toronto, like then I realized the things about Toronto that I missed. Okay, you know, the diversity of food, which back then I think you found much more of in Toronto than Montreal. Now it's it's pretty similar. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the the pace of the city, the the layout of the city. Um, suddenly I
0: was able to appreciate the things in Toronto that maybe I hadn't before. Um. So, yeah. What were your chief hangouts in, in Montreal back in your school days? Oh, I don't know. Whatever, like garbage, you know, bar on Saint Laurent.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and Prince Arthur was selling the cheapest drinks. Um, <laughs> Those were the priorities for sure. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. The <laughs> library, wherever studying extra hard.
0: Was True. Like You're, wherever.
1: Like, Shout out know. to
0: that librarian.
1: Yeah. Whoever's, whoever's DVD player was playing the Big Lebowski <laughs> at the time.
0: When you finished at McGill, where did you go, David? Did you get a job right away, or what was next?
1: Uh, I've never really had a job. Um, <laughs> I uh, yeah, uh-huh. we'll see about that. Um, I, I I wanted knew I wanted to become a journalist, and I wanted to be a foreign correspondent. So I ended up. Um, I ended up moving to South America and I lived in uh, Buenos Aires and Rio de Janeiro um, and traveled around quite a bit for a couple of years uh, before I moved back to Toronto. So, um, yeah, it was, you know, very far away, um, but a wonderful experience and a great time. Uh, And um, and it was only in, I guess, 2005 when I moved back
0: to Toronto. Okay, And you've said that uh, you've always wanted to be a freelance writer. You just started selling articles, then books then more articles and books. And then you talked about these books. Is that kind of the path or that's it?
1: <laughs> Here we are.
0: What type of journalism did you want to do? You talked a little about, it sounds like a foreign journalism.
1: Yeah. I, I think, you know, when I was at Miguel, I was really into the news, um, you know, breaking news, serious news. I I, I I, loved the idea of being a foreign correspondent or even a war correspondent and, um, but I guess, you know, it was, it was sort of that opportunity of where could I go? Where could I learn a language? And, um, for a couple of random circumstances, I ended up in, in Argentina and that, that exposed me. So it wasn't, it wasn't the center of the news world, but it allowed me to try my hand at all sorts of different types of, of writing and journalism. I did a little radio stuff at the time that didn't last long. Um, uh, but it allowed me to kind of, you know try my hand at different things not just news writing but travel writing and business writing and all sorts any publication that would have me um and that was good because it gave me that broad exposure to
0: stuff well i i love hearing about process and on on this podcast we love to see how the sausage gets made let's start with your article writing i'm a huge fan of the new yorker not because i am an intellectual but because i find this their form of long-form journalism is, is kind of the right length for my current attention span what is the process? How do you get your work into the New Yorker? Is that something you get assigned a topic, or you come up with a topic? And how did that all happen? Um,
1: you know, kind of random. First of all, I I should clarify: I, I my articles were published on the New Yorker website, not in paper. Okay. So, um, uh, but you know, they paid me, and it said New Yorker, so I'll put that on my tombstone. <laughs> I take it exactly, and they paid me terribly. So I I I really uh, they'll have to pry that correction out of me. Um, <laughs> Uh, you know, it, it, like anything else, it was connections. I, there was an editor I had worked with at Canadian publications who had moved to New York and I was friends with him and he ended up getting, um, a job there, uh, as, you know, an assistant editor and, um, and working on the website and, uh, you know, started pitching him ideas and that was that, uh, for a couple of years. And, um, Uh, So yeah, that's, that's how it happens. I mean, I think that the magazine pieces is all written by hired staff writers, which is one of the few magazines left where that actually happens. Um, uh, And you know, those people are the, the, the pinnacle of the, uh, of the form.
0: Okay. And, and how would the writing process or the engagement process be different with the New York times? Would something be given to you assigned, or is this something where you propose something?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think unless you're like a staff writer who has a beat or something, um, generally things aren't assigned. Sometimes an editor I know will, will suggest an idea, but um, you know, it's, it's, it, it all, they all kind of work the same, whether you're writing for like the, you know, East Scarborough newsletter, or you're writing for the, the New York times, the New Yorker, the guardian or wherever, you know, every publication is looking to fill its pages paper or web with something, Mm -hmm. uh, so that they can sell copies or sell subscriptions or sell ads. And, um, so editors are always looking for ideas every single day. Uh, they need to fill their thing with ideas that they want. And, um, and as writers and, um, and freelance writers, especially like all you really have is your ideas and, and your ability to sort of interest people in them and then write about them. Um, and that process is no different today than when I started you know, 20 years ago.
0: But major changes have occurred. You are aware of these more than the average person with the changes in technology and the internet. How has that changed? Like, for example, I guess you could call it the democratization of these mediums. You know, for instance, Joe Rogan now finds he has to uh, deal with someone like me with the internet removing these barriers of entry do you find yourself competing with every Joe or Jane Schmo who wants to be a journalist? Um, that's
1: less of a, that's less of a concern. Um, you know, the, the bigger thing is the economics of it, right? The economics of the, the model of journalism, especially print based journalism, um, has been totally upended by the internet. And in, in some ways you could say for better because there's more sources and things available, but, you know, in, in the really detrimental ways, it's completely hollowed out the model of ad sales that allowed for people to be paid for their work, allowed for these publications to continue operating and sell themselves at an affordable price. And so with few exceptions like the New Yorker, the economist, or a few other, you know, New York times that's able to sell subscriptions um you know i entered the business and pretty much from the day i entered it everything just got hollowed out and cratered and and you know publications died off left right and center or the the amount they would pay you declined um you know it, it it's been a a pretty grim and sobering um, experience to see that, which is why these days I don't really write much for uh, newspapers or other publications. um, Certainly as like a way to make a living. I do it Mm -hmm. for promotional reasons or to get ideas out, but um, you know, the internet hollowed that out. All the ad money went to Facebook and Google um, and it, it fled away from the pages of, of the publications and from the pockets of you know, the budgets that could pay for someone like me to write an article and pay for expenses
0: and these sorts of things. I mean, that just died. And what's your viewpoint? You've seen newspapers in particular struggle. Some have gone to a paywall, they've removed the paywall, they're back to the paywall. Where do you kind of see the future of newspapers?
1: I, I do think it ha- it it is, you know, again, based on a subscription model, right? And um, the idea that the information will flow freely is, is a pretty naive one Um, because in order to have actual proper information, proper reporting, fact-checking, you know, people with the budgets to go to places like Ukraine and report on the ground and have the protections and, and, and actually get things right. So you get a, a real, you know, idea of it, or even here in Toronto, like you know, to to have something like Toronto Life report on, you know, certain issues or or the star report on even like a restaurant scene, you know, versus blog to just posting whatever they have. Mm-hmm. Um uh it takes money and takes resources. And so that money has to come from somewhere, right? It has to come from either, you know, advertisers paying to have their things uh posted there and the rates of those have gone down quite a lot, mm-hmm. um, or it has to come from people. Paying for the publication, uh, either with the newsstand or through a subscription or through some sort of online subscription. Um, without that, there's just no free lunch. It, it doesn't. It doesn't just happen. It doesn't just come for free. And the idea that like citizen bloggers are going to make that up is is a pretty naive one. I think that we're, we're certainly realizing. And I think the value of it, the value of living in a city like Toronto and having good reporting people reporting, not just on like the big things that are happening, but you know, local council meetings and local issues and these sorts of things, this is what you need to know to live in a city. Um, This is what kind of keeps it as a, as a civic place.
0: And what is the future of the physical newspaper? I'm still a, print subscriber i don't think there's many like me and uh i don't know if this is a great analogy or example to give you but i I laugh at myself i open the paper on sunday morning and there's a random photo from the leaf game it's not even a not even a goal or or something of significance Just a random photo and the byline always says here's a photo from last night's game by the way we were It ended too late for us to actually tell you the score. Go to the internet if you want to get the score. I can't even believe I'm going through this process. How is the physical paper going to continue to exist?
1: You know, I I think it takes different forms. Um, You know, the idea that you're going to get your daily news by opening up the paper or breaking news or finding out the score of the Leafs game through the paper is, yeah, I don't think anybody really does that. Um, But it has a certain other place, right? Like you get that Sunday paper. I know a lot of people who get the Sunday Star, the, the Saturday Globe. You know, they're not getting it to get the breaking news of the day. They're getting it as something to sit down and read through and enjoy. And learn in greater depth. They're going to read the stories that are more in-depth stories, more contextual stories, maybe about politics or maybe about culture, or maybe it's something going on in sports that isn't just the box score Um, that gives them that deeper appreciation and understanding of the city, you know, that that is still delivered in a much more comprehensive way on paper than it is online. Online, you flip through the headlines, you see the story, skip, 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 you read three things and you're on to the next thing Mm because social media is calling you or someone's pinging you. Um, It's a very different level of engagement. And so, you know, I I still think there's, there's place like there, there, you know, there was the grid, which I wrote for, for years um, when it was happening. And that was the, the weekly or biweekly, paper that toronto Torstar put out and it was young and it was downtown and it was interesting and it really engaged people people would pick mm-hmm. those things up out of the boxes and read them and learn about you know issues in politics that affected them or learn about um you know food and culture in the city and music and and all these things and it was great writing and, and fabulous staff and it, it again like it gave people a greater sense of being toronto and torontonian And and they did that because they would read it cover to cover. You know, Mm -hmm. there's the West End Phoenix, which is a a crowd funded and subscriber supported newspaper that I write for. You know, occasionally, and again, it's you know downtown sort of West Toronto, um, very community focused. There's still other community papers around the city that that engage. Their readership in that way, so I think there's a future, but is that future what it was like in 1985? You know, where you would get your paper every day and it was supported by these big ads. No, like the business has changed, the economics have changed, Um, but that doesn't mean to say that the format is dead. It just is reinventing itself.
0: Now I'm guessing that it would be a very different process to write a book as opposed to a newspaper piece or a long-form journalism piece. How does a book start? Please explain that process. Oh yeah. You know, it's, it isn't that different.
1: It's just a longer, slower, calmer process. Um, you know, a book is like any other retail product. Someone has an idea for it. They're able to sell that idea and then they go and sort of produce it and then spend some time trying to sell it basically. And who knows whether it's a hit or not. Um, I, I really enjoy writing books and that's what I spend most of my time doing now. Uh, you know, a book begins as an idea, And a series of conversations and questions, and you kind of work on them over a period of time until it becomes clear that there's a book there, that there's something substantial to say, um, and that, you know, can fill 300 pages or whatever it is. And, uh, And then, you know, through conversations with an agent and eventually a publisher and an editor you know that you come to an agreement on what that book is you kind of sell it officially you get your contract and you're off to the races you have a deadline you do your research you know you write your drafts you do your editing you know conversations come out about you know the cover and what it's going to look like and blah 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 and marketing plans and You know, you 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 hustle to sort of do your best to sell it around the time it publishes, and then um, goes out in the world, shows up in a a, you know a bookstore shelf or on Amazon or wherever, and people read it, and hopefully more people read it than the last one, and uh, and then you just do it again and again and again and again.
0: Well, lots of people read yours because you had some hits. I want to ask you back to the process, especially knowing that you're working solo. When is the book writing process over? How how do you know when to kind of say okay, it's done.
1: Um, You know, it's, it's very different for me because I'm a nonfiction writer. So, um, you know, it's a very different process of fiction. I was talking to a friend last night and his, his wife is writing a novel, her first novel. Right. Okay. And so, you know, for a novel um, let's say, Andrew, you want to write a novel, whatever, any kind of novel, literary novel, detective book, what have you. And I have friends who are novelists you know, it's like, you have this idea, you work with it, you work with these characters, you work through stories and you write it and maybe do an outline, but like you're, you're working on it until it's done until you're truly satisfied with this thing and the the arc and the story where you ended and it's an artistic process. And then you go and sell it. Then you show it to your editor, your, your agent, or you try to get it sold with a nonfiction book. Um, you know, you you actually, it's all about the idea. And what you do before you write anything is you, you actually write a book proposal, which is like, this is what the book's about. Here's what it's going to look like. Here's what the chapters are going to be. So you have a very concerted plan of what This is going to be like chapter by chapter, argument by argument, you know what research you have to do. Then you go out and do the research and then you make a plan of how you're going to write it. Mm -hmm. And there's a deadline, right? There's like this first draft of the book is due on October 2nd, you know, 2023. Like, you know, the book is done because you got to send it in at that time. And so you you know, you write chapter one, you write chapter two, you write all the chapters, you write your conclusion, you go back, you edit it a couple of times. It's like, then you send it off. That's, that's how you know it's done. Um, It's done when you, when you send it off, but it's less of a precious process um, and a less of an ambiguous process than it is writing a novel.
0: Now, having said that your books are very time-based, so to speak. And I, I, there must be some pressure you feel or, stress you feel when you have finished it you submitted it what's the timeline between when you submit it and when it comes out knowing that you obviously want to come out as soon as possible
1: usually about a year wow yeah maybe less yeah
0: and do you subsequently make voice or audible versions of your books or is is that like
1: Yeah. yeah yeah i've done um all except the first book okay yeah
0: Let's now, with your permission, I would like to talk about all of your books because to me, each is very unique and interesting. Let's start with the one that's currently out. The Future is Analog. How Actually, it create... comes
1: out, doesn't come out until November. Wow. So, um,
0: You're al- you already got it up, uh, available. I guess yeah. it's pre-order, they call it.
1: Uh, I don't even know if it's available for <laughs> pre-order at this point. Um, it's, it's pre-production. It's...
0: The Future is Analog, How to Create yeah. a More Human World. This lays yeah. out a case, or will lay out a case, for a human future, not the false technological utopia that we've been living. Tell us about this, please.
1: Sure. Interesting that we're doing this backward from the new, from the for the book that hasn't come out to the to the to the first one. I've I've always done it the other way, but that's okay. It's new <laughs> for everyone, and it's your podcast, so who am I to say no? Um. Yeah. This book really was my. Let's call it pandemic memoir slash uh, essay, yes. and it, it it you know it's I, it it relates to a book I wrote a couple of years ago called The Revenge of Analog, which we'll talk about. But you know, it's, it's something I've been thinking about, which is that this question of the future, right? For the entirety of my life, you know, forty two years, the future has always meant digital. Um, and we, every prediction about the future has always been based around what digital technology is going to do and what it's going to look like and how it's going to change our lives. And so the future of every aspect of our life, work, schools, social life, community, cities, you know, everything was when you talked about the future, you were talking about digital technology. How would computers change Toronto? How would it change you know, schools? How is it going to impact work? And the visions of the future were always centered around that, centered around digital. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in the future, we're going to, it's going to be amazing. You can do everything but a computer and you can do a remote and it's going to be incredible. And this is the future, you know, this is the future we're building. And then two years ago, the future arrived uh, through a virus and um, everyone went home and that future was there. And all of a sudden it's like, all right, open up your screen. Here's the future. You're going to work remotely. You're going to go to school. Your kids are going to go to school remotely. You know, everything... uh, in your life is going to be digital. You know, entertainment is going to be digital and the way you engage with the city is going to be digital and this is the future. And, and, and isn't it great? And I think we realized within like a week, just how shitty that was and how much that future sucked. Yeah. And, um, and yeah, there's aspects of it that were good. And, you know, more people started more podcasts and we got familiar with certain technologies, but like it's, it's, you know, we were talking about the end of the pandemic, like it was, you know, listen, it was horrible that people were getting sick and people were dying. And thankfully here in Toronto, we were spared the worst of it as 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 compared to other places like the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, but people were sick. People were dying. Um, but most people here that I know were, were fortunate to be spared that. Um, what most of us dealt with was the stress and the dislocation and just the... The low level disappointment that this digital future actually brought us, right? the The horrendousness of having your children learning from an iPad in yep. elementary school. yeah, the 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 drudgery of just, Back to back to back to Zoom meetings all day, sitting in your chair in your sweatpants. Um, you know the the lifelessness of like online events and online concerts. Um, and so as soon as things opened up, we craved the very analog things that we said weren't going to be part of our future, right? Oh, the future is going to be every all you, you're not going to need to go to restaurants because everything will be delivered to your door. And people were like, "Get me to a patio, get me to a restaurant," right? Yeah you know, get me to a sporting event. Like I need to go to a Leafs game. I need to go to a Raptors game. Like I want all these things. I need that. The, it made us all appreciate these things that actually made us who we were, which is the non-digital things. And so the book really looks at what we learned from this time, sort of a forced preview of the digital future. What do we learn about the future we actually want to build? And the value of those non-digital things in all aspects of our life, um, that matter like things like, you know, I have a whole chapter on cities and how for years we talked about the future of Toronto is going to be, you know, digital and data and smart cities. And look at what Google's doing in the waterfront sidewalk Toronto, right? This is the future of Toronto. It's going to be self-driving cars. And then we're like, wait, wait, why the hell are we worrying about self-driving cars? Actually, all we need to do is like let restaurants put more patios out on the sidewalks and build, you know, take, take out, get rid of some parking spaces and let people like put chairs out and have drinks there. We actually need to improve our parks better and have like, Hey, we could close down these roads and we could bike on lakeshore instead of just clogging with cars, whether they're self-driving or electric or regular cars. Like that actually made our city so much better and, and was able to do things like that improve the quality of life here overnight, which were entirely analog things, right? They're nothing to do with technology. It's just required like a good excuse to do.
0: Do you want to call us a silver lining of this pandemic or, or that would be giving it too much of a shine? I, I,
1: I think it's the opportunity to learn, right? Mm-hmm. And build build the future we want. Because for so long, we just accepted the future we were told we were going to accept. The future is going to be AR and VR. And we're like, okay, if that's what you say, Zuckerberg. Mm-hmm. Um, but now he's like, the future is going to be VR. And everyone's like, fuck you, Zuckerberg. The mm-hmm. future is face-to-face. I am not going to put on a goggles to go watch a leaf game. Like I'm going to go, I mean, I'm not going to watch a leaf game because it's tremendously expensive, but if someone's paying
0: for me to go, yeah. I'll go. Yeah. Now you call this what the book that is coming out, David, a, a pandemic memoir. I, I'm going to take your know. advice and jump around a little here. How yeah. was this a, is it directly related? Would you say, or even a follow-up to your 2016 book, the revenge of analog real yes. things and why they matter it, it, in a way it is
1: in the, thematically. I mean, the Revenge of Analog was looking at a much bigger phenomenon that was happening around the world. And it was, you know, noticing over the course of almost a decade how, you know, as as we got smartphones and and as, you know, digital became so much more prevalent in every aspect of our life, how the computer moved from the desk to our hand and and sort of conquered everything, right? Work education, entertainment, dating, whatever you want to call it. Um, precisely the time when everyone said we could get rid of all the, the non-digital things, newspapers and, and, and publications and physical music and stores and all these things, we wouldn't need them anymore. All of a sudden, a lot of those things actually started growing again and coming back. And I was fascinated at why this was happening. Why were people buying vinyl records again? You know, Toronto, Couple of years ago was outside of Amsterdam and Berlin, like the most dense city for uh, uh, vinyl record stores mm. uh, anywhere in the world. I mean, especially here where I live, you know, Ossington and Dundas, like you couldn't go a block without bumping into a record store. Now most of those have become cannabis stores, which are now closed. <laughs> um, then that's a whole other topic. But um, but it, you know, it was it, I was witnessing this happening when I was living. Kind of in the annex area, just the beginnings of it, and I'm like, this is really odd. Like, we just got these phones that go in our hand; you could do everything, and yet everybody's walking around with these black moleskin notebooks, which just mm-hmm. seem to have come out of nowhere. Why is this occurring? And so the book really looked at this growth of analog and all these different areas, you know, independent bookstores growing again. And, and, and here in Toronto, you know, we had years where they were closing and now the new ones are opening up um, flying books, a new bookstore just opened up by me on college type has opened its third location in the past couple of years. Um, uh, you know, the, this thing that we had written off physical, non-digital goods and ideas and experiences suddenly had a growth again. And so um so i really wanted to find out why that was happening and and i not only, you know, chronicled it here in toronto but uh, around the world.
0: your this book which was 2016 made an argument for the enduring value of real things but even while recognizing and embracing constant change.
1: right. yeah, i guess that's what it says in the back of the book.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and i i guess the the tie into what you're talking about today and the book that's going to come out it, it i guess further Uh, embraces, I guess, some of the uh, arguments you make in the uh, book from 2016.
1: Yeah. I mean, the the Revenge of Analog was more about, you know, the pleasure of certain objects or the utility of certain things like, you know, retail stores, physical retail stores, right? Whether it's bookstores or hardware stores or any kind of store in your community. Um, and, And I think the pandemic, again, just clarified a lot of that because it actually, you know, this, the the digital future was this theoretical thing that was always coming, but then suddenly like the only place you could eat restaurant food was by ordering it off Uber eats or whatever Mm -hmm. You, you saw and felt and experienced that difference, you know, in the real sense. Like, Oh, the future of education is going to be every kid's going to be learning remotely. And you're like, Oh, maybe in 30 years, that'll happen. And then all of a sudden, your kids are home. And they're like screaming at you from an iPad, and the connections not working. And you realize <laughs> they're going insane. And you want to kill them. And they want to kill you. And everybody hates it. And you're like, right. Okay. Now I'm actually experiencing this firsthand. Like this is, this is not theoretical anymore. And I can see what it's actually like. So that now when someone's like, well, the future of education is going to be digital, like you, everyone will slap that person in the face who has gone through what, you know, families went through over the past (laughs) two years. If anyone's like the, you know, we're going to invest in, you know, virtual education,
0: like, you know, It's a very different argument today.
1: It's a very different argument today. Before it's like, oh, cool. Kids are going to learn with VR goggles. And you're like, just put them in school. I don't care. Like, I don't care if they like go back to a 1920s model of education, like children belong in school at the end.
0: Your uh, book of 2020 was very different. The Soul of the Entrepreneur, Work and Life Beyond the Startup Mm -hmm. Myth. What motivated you to write about this particular topic? Well,
1: it's the fact that like I said, I have never had a job. I've always worked for myself. I've always been self-employed. Um and uh, those around me uh are all entrepreneurs. My dad always worked for himself. My, you know, uh my in-laws, my wife started her own business, my brother works for himself. So, you know, I knew so many entrepreneurs. Um and I identified with it in a strong way as someone who worked for himself and you know, other people I know who started their own business. But um What I found, you know, as I started to sort of think about it was that was very different from the entrepreneurs that we heard about and are sort of glorified, which are the startups. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, every month Toronto Life has their you know, one page feature on like some cool startup. And it's like, it's a pet walking, you know, app, or it's like an app that teaches you how to, I don't know, tie your shoes. And it's like, you know, every one of them is like this young bro. And he's like, my hero, is Steve Jobs, my hero is Elon Musk. Yep, you No. Know? Uh, and, and it's, so we've glorified this one very narrow vision of entrepreneurship, leaving out the 99% of businesses in a city like Toronto and entrepreneurs, who actually make the city run, right? The people who have, you know, restaurants and coffee shops and small accounting firms and lawyers. And, um, and you know, anytime you need someone to come fix your house or do something like, you know, you need the person to do the roofing. And and this, this city, like any other economy, is run by entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. But we only seem to glorify um, or talk about a very small percentage of them. Sure. And, well, those are the sexy that,
0: ideas, right?
1: Exactly. And that disconnect, I think, is is something that that I really wanted to get at. And this book explores it and then gets into, you know, what does it actually mean to be an entrepreneur? Not like, how do you make money or how to be successful? But like, what is it actually like to be an entrepreneur? Um, what does that look like? What What is the reason why people do it? What's the motivation behind it? What's What's the reality of that versus the mythology?
0: Your first two books which is really where you came to prominence, I guess we're more food-based. So 2014, The Tastemakers, Innovators Who Put Food Trends on Your Plate, and your very first book, 2010's Save the Deli, In Search of Perfect Pastrami, Crusty Rye, and the Heart of Jewish Delicatessen. What got you started on the, these books? Food culture was, I guess, would you call it your first love, or was it what you really were focused at the beginning? You know,
1: like everything else, it just kind of... It's like, I fell into it. it the Delhi book came out of a paper that I wrote when I was at McGill, um, oh, wow. for a Jewish sociology class, which I took, cause I thought it would be an easy mark. And maybe <laughs> because it didn't, you know, it didn't have classes on Fridays and I would go skiing on Fridays in the winter. Um, Good you know, man. very strong. Yeah. Real road scholar here. Um, uh, you know, that book, um, Uh, came out of that paper. And I was, you know, when after when I was living in South America, I came back and I still wanted to write it. And it was really looking at, you know, the Jewish delis that I knew growing up um, were fewer and fewer in Montreal and here in Toronto, like a lot of them were closing or had closed. Um, And, you know, once there were dozens of Jewish delis in Toronto, and now there's really just like three. Yeah. Um, which is terrible for a city with the fifth largest or fourth largest Jewish population in North America. Mm-hmm. Um why was that happening? And this wasn't just Toronto, it was everywhere. It was New York, it was it was, you know, Montreal, it was it, 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 and it and and it, it sort of became this obsession that that I at the time, you know, I was young, I didn't have a family or anything. So I was like, oh, well, I'll just get in my car and drive around North America and visit every deli I can and learn about, you know, what happened with these communities and and then go, you know, around the world. And and so it, it really was the search for the soul of 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 the deli and what had happened to it, the kind of rise and fall and and the future of it. Um and because I wrote that book, uh the, you know, then I got kind of pigeonholed as a food writer for a couple of years and I was writing for food magazines and, and writing about food. And, and this is what I was sort of known for. And the tastemakers was kind of an idea that came out of that, um, which was, you know, it was, it was at the time when food trends were emerging as a really powerful force. Like food trends have always been there, but I think with, you know, the beginning of social media, you had the like boom of cupcakes or, um, of other sorts of, of trends, diet trends, for example, in a way that was happening like faster and with a bigger impact than it had happened before. Mm -hmm. And, and, and I kind of wanted to pick apart how that happened.
0: Are you David working on any TV projects or documentaries? Is that an interest of yours?
1: It's an interest that I'd love to engage, but no, I'm not. I mean, if anybody has something they'd like me to work on, um, I've, I've considered it over the years. I've, I've, you know, talked to people, you know, we've talked about, you know, we've had deals and contracts and things, and it never seems to go anywhere. Um, it's something I would I would like to explore and consider in the future, but um, nothing's, no opportunities come up. And I certainly haven't taken it on my own to kind of do that firsthand.
0: I want to talk to you about the feedback loop. You're, you know, going back to your first book, we're talking more than a decade ago today with the internet and with the various mediums you work through, how much more accessible are your readers and your fans or detractors? And do you like that kind of feedback loop that comes from your readers?
1: Um, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, really from the, the get-go, um, from when I, you know, the first book I wrote was 2009. Um, yeah. I've, I've always been fortunate enough to engage with people uh, who've read the books, who reach out to me, um, usually by email or occasionally through, you know, social media. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's, it's wonderful. Like it really is, you know, it's, 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 it's difficult to put a, you know, a couple of years of work into a book and send it out there. And then you never know how it'll sell. And some have sold and some haven't. Um, But, you know, when you get an email from someone saying that they read your book and it meant something to them, or it made a difference to them, or in the case of, you know, save the deli or revenge of analog, I've had people like, Hey, I live in name some random place. Um, and just, I just want you to know, I read your book and it inspired me to open a bookstore in, um, Alberta or inspired me to open a Jewish deli in Atlanta. Uh, that's incredible. Like that is, that means more than, you know, any sales figures or numbers. Um, uh, and it's, it's lovely to hear from people. I, I, I hear from people, you know, every couple of weeks from someone who's read something um, one of my books. And uh, it's, it's just, it's wonderful. Like it really is. It really is wonderful to know that something you did made it out there into the world, into someone's hands. And someone took the time to chose to choose that book and spend time to actually read it. I mean, that's a, that's a privilege.
0: Now I agree with all that, but the flip side is you're also an open target for anyone who for whatever reason wants to talk ill of you Do you get any of that? And how do you, do you laugh it off or do you, does it bother you?
1: Uh, I, I, you know, based on the subjects I've written about, um, thankfully really haven't like I've had the odd thing here or there, but you know, I'm not, the Nazis aren't out for me yet. Uh, Uh, and, and, and conspiracy theorists and the real wackos, I, I do not. Um, I have not got, you know, I've had people like saying, well, I don't agree with, you know, the delis you chose and why didn't you choose this? Mm -hmm. I've had some people, you know, talking to me about their, their, how they disagree with me on certain things. But yeah, the, the true, the true haters, I mean, that more of, if I write something, you know, an op-ed somewhere in the Globe mail of the New York times and someone really disagrees with it. But, um, you know, I tend not to write on those topics just generally. So I don't get as much of that as someone, let's say, writing about politics mm-hmm. um, sure. or certain aspects of, of culture, for example. Um, I know people like that. I have friends who are love controversy and love writing about this and talking about the subjects. And it's, it's intense and very stressful for them. Um, but they're addicted to it. And that's, they're addicted to that feedback loop in the same way. Mm. And uh, it takes Good a Good to or bad. Yeah, both. Yeah. Yeah. It takes a toll. Whereas I'm like, all right, I'm, you know, I've literally at the beginning of writing this book, set a timer on my browser. I can only go on social media for 10 minutes a day. And then it kicks me off for the the other, you know, 23 hours and 15 minutes. And that is just healthy as hell.
0: Like it's, it's so well, you you've actually implemented this. Yeah. 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 It's great. Highly that, recommend it. Was that in reaction to it? the way you felt about the way you were handling it, or you did this proactively?
1: Uh, it was like, okay, I have to write this book. I have to get down to work. I can't spend all my time fucking around on social media all day. It does nothing for me and it makes me feel bad. So, mm-hmm. well, you know, I'll do, uh, 10 minutes is enough to like quickly check in on things, see if anyone sent me a message, but like I don't need to constantly scroll through it. Um, And it's definitely the best thing I've done and I highly recommend it to everyone
0: else. You have good advice. And I think you're also an expert on kind of what's going on and trends as we in 2022 in Toronto and of course as you noted we can debate whether this transition has happened from pandemic to endemic and whether it's coming back i got a few for you here #endemic Handshakes. Handshakes. #handshakes are they coming back
1: yeah i mean it was never it was never about uh you know hand uh hand transferred virus I granted there's like some norovirus going around some daycares that I know mm-hmm. so you know don't shake the baby's hands um, yeah. or lick their faces uh, you know wash your hands but like yeah handshakes hugs all that.
0: okay well I, my uh, grandfather Grandpa Applebaum was a big hugger my dad was a hugger I'm a hugger. But you know, we've been told for so long now, especially in Canada, we use the hockey stick as the, uh, the guideline. Stay a hockey stick away. Are people going to be hugging again?
1: Uh, from what I see in my experience, yeah, for sure. I mean, I'm supposed to go out for dinner with my friends tonight, which may get cancelled because of someone being exposed to COVID. But whatever. Mm-hmm. And like, yeah, what am I going to like stand off and bow to them like I'm, You know, like 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 it's 2020. Um, no, I I think we've we understand this thing, we understand risk. We take the precautions we decide we need to take. And like, when we're going to be with people, we're going to be with people. Um, uh, I don't think, you know, that's fundamentally changed. I think all these predictions, and this is part of future is analog is like, at the beginning of it, you know, there were all these sweeping predictions like no one's ever going to hug again. No one's going into an office again. And, mm-hmm. you know, downtown Toronto is going to be completely vacant and no one's going to go to restaurants. They're just going to order online from ghost kitchens. And it's like this was just like the most knee jerk bullshit, you know, <laughs> ill-informed opinions sure. um, that goes contrary to the way that we actually know how we want to live in the world.
0: Well, let's hope we get back when I see you. We will we will hug and handshake. Hug, it hug hug and handshake. Here's one for you, you, David. The need for university and college education. Let me give you a brief background. So my sister is an esteemed professor at the very excellent George Brown College, and she has lamented the, I guess, the degradation of the college university experience over the past two years, not only for the students, but for her, for the professors and the other educators, you just can't get the same engagement over a zoom call but this has led some to question the very traditional and I think you grew up the same way as I did you must go to college university path for young people is this necessarily still the path
1: you know again like the mistake that the the boosters of virtual education online learning have the fundamental mistake is they they confuse education with information,
0: mm-hmm. they
1: think like, "Oh, you go to university, or you go to, you know, you go to U of T, you go to York, you go to George Brown, you go to Humber to learn about accounting." But I could teach you about accounting online. It's like, yeah, you can learn the the rules of accounting and the you know uh, dual entry book system or whatever the hell it is online or from a book. But for the same reason that universities and college have existed and grown and become more important, even though we've had libraries filled with books for hundreds of years, is the same reason why they're more important today, even with all the information online. It's not about the information you learn. It's about how you learn it. It's about the environment you learn it in. It's about the people you learn with it. And the most important thing are the relationships. When you think back to your university, your college, and I don't know where you went or if you went... Um, Andrew, you can I, now fill it Well, in. no, I
0: did. I, I I did go to the recently renamed Western University and I agree a thousand percent with you. It is all about
1: relationships. Wait, Western got renamed?
0: <laughs> Yet another. I'm
1: Ryerson, I understand, but like what? What's Western now called?
0: Actually, well, it was University of Western Ontario. Now it's Western University. I think that was more a branding <laughs> exercise rather than a reaction.
1: Right, got it. Okay, everyone just still called it Western. Yeah. Um. You know, when you think back to your time there, the most impactful thing was probably not what you learned in X class or Y class, right? Unless you went to medical school. It was, it was the friends you made, the relationships you built, the relationships you may have built with one or two professors or the people who you took that class with. That's education. That's learning. It's learning how to live in the world and process information and learn by building friendships and relationships with other people otherwise absence of that relationship it's just random facts and information so the idea that the future in any way is you know lessening those relationships again has been proven wrong by the past 2 years it's like the vast majority of students and faculty at universities colleges you know trade schools whatever are like, get me back to class. This sucks. This is terrible. And I've talked to many of them. I'm a mentor to students at McGill who just go on about how awful it is and how impoverished that experience is. That's not what they want. They don't want to learn from their sweatpants. Yeah, it's convenient for a bit, but like this is not why they went to university. Absolutely. Agree
0: with you 100%. Let's return to another hot topic the return to the office, Uh, an executive with a major Canadian bank. He had a question for you, but to uh, protect his anonymity, I will call him Bollum McBinley. Bollum whines, or rather asks, does David Sachs expect that I will have to return to my downtown office tower on a Monday to Friday, nine to five basis? I was surprised how much more productive and emotionally relaxed I was working from home for the past two years.
1: Um, ballum or whatever yeah so will ball and mcbinley
0: need to go back to the office
1: I, I you know it depends right listen i'm someone who has worked from home remotely since day one of my career so i get it um i don't know how anyone wears a suit or like leather dress shoes or Heels, God forbid. Um, I I totally get it. You know, my wife used to work downtown in the world of finance, and you know, would pack onto that Queen Street car after three streetcars went by, and eat her sad, shitty desk lunch from the path. Like, ugh, God, you couldn't pay me right, or you would have to pay me a tremendous amount of money. Um, so yeah, I I totally get it. Um, but the idea that all of a sudden everyone can just go home and work from their computers and everything's going to be the same and it's going to work as well. And it'll be just as good. There's sacrifices both ways. Um, You know, what's lost is the relationships again that are built same as education, right? When you think about where you work, is it the tasks that you do day in day out or is it the learning that you have there, the education, the mentorship, the, the relationships you build, the networks you build, all of that, is far more difficult, if not impossible, online. Mm -hmm. It's easy to sort of continue work for a period of a year or so, but over the longer term, the thing that makes a workplace a workplace starts to really dissipate. And I know Mm -hmm. far more people who are happy to go back to the office um, and are looking forward to it for all sorts of reasons, for the camaraderie, for the learning, for a separation of sort of home and work um, as a sort of mental, physical separation, than the people who are whining that they don't want to go back. But that said, like I think the thing that will hopefully come out of it is not one or the other. It's, it's more flexibility. What what Mm -hmm. most people I know want who work in, you know, what I call real jobs is just like, they just want to be treated like adults. Like if today's, you know, you know, my kid's sick and, or like, I don't know, it's, it's, I, I have a doctor's appointment. Like I don't want to have to ask someone from HR if I can go to the doctor's appointment and like yeah. clock out two hours. Like I can do my work. Just let me work from home today, but I'll mm-hmm. come in tomorrow. Cause there's an important thing. And like that matters. Right. Treat us um, like adults treat us exactly treat give people a little bit of autonomy i think that's what people want um more so and i think that's where the future is and it's not like some complicated like everyone comes in on monday and then tuesday you have the a team and wednesday we have the b team and then a big all hands meeting on thursdays and everyone works remotely on fridays but there's a retreat every 3 weeks where we like come together and everyone does trust falls it's you know the magic the innovation the ideas productivity like all that, that happens in a lot of those random moments that just you need people to be together every day to sort of occur, right? It's it's the fabric of the the workplace. So- We're going to have um, to find
0: this hybrid, this new way of working.
1: Yeah, and again, I think it's more flexibility, which for someone who works as an executive of a bank is harder, right? It's like, well, nine to five, that's when you come in. That's what we're paying you for. Yep. It's it's removing what, what the real paradigm shift that has to happen. I talk about this in the new book is- it's removing the notion of like 19th century productivity, which is like, you work X hours, you're paid this much mm-hmm. from the 21st century model work, which is like, here are these tasks that we need to do. You know, we're going to pay you for it. Whether you do it in an hour or three days, doesn't really matter to us. It's really about the quality work. We trust that you're able to do it. That's a mm-hmm. big amount of trust that, especially for corporations And, you know, larger companies like banks, they're going to have to wrap their head around how to do that. And that's difficult. That's difficult.
0: Shopping over the Internet. And we've seen home delivery of everything. This whole way of shopping has been turbocharged during COVID. Yet we've also seen a bit of a return to shop local and support your community is Amazon going to continue its dominance in our lives or do you expect kind of a rebalancing of our shopping habits?
1: I mean, I think you've seen it already, right? I remember that first weekend when they lifted retail, allowed in-store shopping for the first time in 2020. And it was like lineups of every store, like, you know, like dollar stores and winners and Um, and clothing stores and, you know, here on Ossington and Queen West, like nobody needed this stuff desperately. They weren't shopping for food out of desperation. Um, Like at the beginning of the pandemic, it was like, this is, I need to go somewhere. I need to get something. Um, It's convenient to order things online, but it's almost much more convenient sometimes just go down to the store and buy it. Uh, We did a bunch of online grocery delivery when it wasn't safe to do, you know, to go into grocery stores, but it was just like, How many bad, how many bad apples? Quite literally, can you get from you know voila by Sobies before you're like, I'm just going to go to the fruit store around the corner and like hand pick the apples I need to get so I get the good ones, or I need it now. I don't. I can't wait three days for the for the groceries to arrive. Like,
0: may I complain to you, David, about my wife? Vicky was uh, born and raised in Montreal, and I should shout out to Greenfield Park on the South Shore at this point. But she moved to Toronto with that great exodus was after your parents but in the late 90s but my point is she's now lived in toronto for far longer than she ever lived in montreal but she still cheers for not only the wrong hockey team but in her twitter bio says lover of all things montreal but toronto is okay but i want to put to you via her montreal smoked meat sandwich versus the toronto pastrami on rye vicky says there's only one correct answer but i want your take on this
1: First of all, like all food preferences, it is, it is entirely individual, right? Um, Objectively speaking, there's a reason why Montreal smoked meat, especially from great places like Schwartz's is famous in a way that Toronto deli isn't. Um, And that's, you know, we can get very specific. Um, You know, what I like to say is like every city has its own, its own specialties Mm -hmm. and, you know, Like a Montreal steam-a hot dog is a delicious thing, but a Toronto grilled street dog is a delicious thing too. You have to appreciate each one for what it has and what it is. Um, Even the Toronto bagel, you know, much maligned by Montrealers. Like, it's a better bagel for a sandwich. If you're going to put a schmear of tuna salad on a bagel, the Montreal bagel is a terrible vessel for that. Terrible. Yep. It's too narrow. You know, it, it's too dense. Um. You know, give me a Greif's bagel or better even yet, like a Harvard onion bun for that. That's, that's the bread for the job.
0: Well, let's jump right into that. Kettleman's has recently expanded in Toronto to a second location. It seems to have been accepted that they have most closely captured the quality and the essence of a St. Via tour a fair amount. Have you tried them and what's your thought on these Kettleman's bagels? They're
1: good. They're good. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm still partial to the Montreal bagel mostly because my son likes them the most. Um, yep. uh, yeah. Kettleman's is very good. Um, I, I like, I also like um, new Google or new bagel and Kensington market. They do yep. a good one. Uh, and bagel house is my you know, my parents, after once that opened, they stopped driving to Montreal every six months to buy, like, five dozen bagels.
0: Well, as you say, it's up to the individual. So, we we here at my house, we exactly what you described. We got two bags in the freezer. We got the, uh, yeah. the Toronto bagels and the Montreal, and now maybe the Kelman's is going to...
1: And then the Toronto, you know, you're going to have your Toronto bagel, like... Um, you know, arguments as well. Uh, and and this is not just for Toronto Jewish food. I mean, it's for, you know, I've had friends who are like from Scarborough and they argue about Jamaican patties, uh, Chinese sure. friends from Markham and they're arguing about who has the best, you know, char bao. I mean, that is that is kind of the defining thing of Toronto, right? It's a city that's constantly changing that has no like one accepted standard. And the change is what makes the city great and vibrant and a wonderful place and a great place to live. But it's, you know, we're not
0: rooted in that one thing. Um, which is good. Uh, it's, it's absolutely good. And I think, uh, when we talk about breakfast, lunch and dinner, I want to know, David, where you eat a lot at home. I guess. <laughs> um, I had,
1: I had a, a, a long conversation with my barber the other day and her and I were talking about where to get breakfast. Like okay. all I want is just like a fabulous diner breakfast. Okay. Um, And those are harder to find in the city. Although I do like the patrician grill on King street um, as my diner breakfast or club sandwich go to. Mm -hmm. So I would say that for, for breakfast or for bagel stuff, the schmaltz appetizing, um, you know, uh, salmon and cream cheese and um, herring and all that is to me, peerless in the city. Okay. Uh, Lunch. I mean what's a more quintessential Toronto lunch than dim sum? Yes. And when I say Toronto I actually mean Skyview Fusion in Markham which I last went to in the summer which had set up like cabanas in their parking lot for outdoor dining. Yep. You really haven't lived peak pandemic Toronto. And again this is that innovation, that analog innovation that makes our future better. It's like, hey, I can have outdoor patio dim sum <laughs> in a in a parking lot with the Costco like yeah. A gorgeous, you know, p- they made like, this is heaven. Um, That place is to me become like the pinnacle of dim sum for me. Although I'll happily hit a roll song downtown. Excellent. Walking distance to my house. Anything um, for dinner that jumps out at you? Everything for dinner. Okay. I don't know. You know, it's, I, I'm at the phase of my life where it's all about just like the local go-to. Um, <clears throat> I, I love, you know, I got, there's a few local places like union near me on Ossington. Um. But I keep going back to Imanishi, which is a Japanese izakaya, um, but just fun and great. And like I went there in December, right before the latest Omicron wave shut everything yep. down. And it was my reunion dinner with my two friends who I had gone to two years before at the beginning of the pandemic, like the Tuesday before everything shut down. Okay. So we joked that it were like cursed because now everything was going to shut again and it Uh-oh. did um but it was like it hadn't missed a beat like it was it was that idea of like are we going to go back to restaurants will it be different and it was like nope like aside from the fact that i had to show my vaccine passport going in the door yeah. you know it was as good as fun as great as ever it's like those types of places in a city where everything's changing like you got to hold on to them you got yep. it's good to, it's cool to check out the new stuff but you know the go-to's the standards great never
0: die Two favorite things. Let's move off from food though. I want two of your favorite things to do or places to go in Toronto. And I'm going to let you do one of them very commonly. You know, everyone says go to the CN tower or the Toronto islands. And I'd I'd like one of them to be more of a hidden gem. What's two things you like to do or places you go in Toronto? Okay,
1: cool. Um, uh, yeah. I mean, would I say Toronto islands, sure. I'll say Toronto islands. Um, the islands is magic. Like that first time you go in the summer, the spring, you got to go on a bike. You you know, only an idiot would go and walk there. Um, it's just so big. And like, once you're there, you, you know, take a bike and go bring a hammock, go to the beach. The water's the cleanest there. It really is magical. I had, I'd had years where I did decades where I didn't go. And every time I go back, I'm just awed by the place. It's, it's incredible. It's like this, it's our central park. And because it's separated by this ferry that you got to pay for and it should be free. It's ridiculous. Like, um, I think it's completely
0: uh, underappreciated.
1: It's, it's underappreciated until you go. And then you're like, this is the best and go and get a picnic and bring all sorts of food and bring some beers and like, just live and enjoy the fact that you know, we forget that this city is like a natural city. It's a city, it's not Vancouver, but like it has amazing parks and it has lakes. And I think this is something that, you know, we realized over the past few years when all we had to do was kind of walk around and go to places and yep. check out parks and go skating and ponds and stuff. And I think the other thing is, um, and this is related to it, is like, the pandemic hobby I picked up was surfing on the lake, which I had surfed for years ago in, in wow. Argentina and Brazil. I kind of gave it up. I've been paddleboarding the, on the lake for years um, and loved it. But uh, last, not last fall, but the you know fall of 2020, I got like a super thick wetsuit and um, a new surfboard. And I started going out to Woodbine Beach and the Scarborough Bluffs on crazy windy, stormy days. Um, and surfing and met a whole crew of surfers there who do it. And like, it's the best times, the most Torontonian I've ever felt, um, you know, driving back through Scarborough covered in like ice in a wetsuit. Cause it's too cold to even take it off to like stop somewhere and eat a roti in my front seat. I mean, yeah, What's more, what's more Toronto than that.
0: That is an excellent hidden gem, <laughs> David, what are your plans for the remainder of 2022 and beyond? What are you working on?
1: Uh, you know, I'm, I'm now moving into the kind of book promotion and publicity and sales mode for this book that I just really stopped, uh, finished writing and editing a few weeks ago. Um, and then I guess I got to figure out what the next project is.
0: So we'll see. That book is, that book is called the future is analog, how to create a more human world. Look for it coming soon. David, it was excellent having you. Where can we best follow you and know what you were up to?
1: Good question. I'd say the internet, uh, but I try not to post too much on it. You know, Twitter at David S A X D A B I D. Although, I don't know. I'm really, again, trying to spend as little time there as possible. Okay. Um, look in your bookstore
0: shelf <laughs> window. Okay. I, I don't know. What's the estimated yeah. timing? We're going to see that book. Uh,
1: Mid-November. November okay. 15th is publications. So um, yeah, it should be, you'll be hearing about it in the fall and should be at then. We'll make a wonderful gift for anyone who cares excellent. about the future uh, except your like you know uh, d- cryptocurrency bro friend who's like all about his Tesla
0: excellent for anyone except that demographic
1: or maybe that demographic <laughs> who needs a little bit of like a waking up very good
0: yeah well, well thank you for listening to this episode of the Toronto Legends podcast and on behalf of David Sachs I am Andrew Applebaum saying mahalo
1: Check us out on Apple,
0: Spotify, the Fountain app, and at naturalmanpodcast.com.
1: Hi, I'm Mercedes Nickel, four-time Winter Olympian and host of Dropping In, a podcast with Mercedes.